Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Georgia. With me is Greg Velasquez in Iowa. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Mexico on Thursday at the Azteca, Panama on Sunday in Orlando, and Costa Rica next Wednesday in San Jose, where we've never gotten a point. Joining me today to talk through these opponents and how the upcoming window looks from their perspective is John Arnold. How are you, man? I'm good. I can't believe it. We're at the end of the road. That's I know. It. You You have been a steadfast friend through World Cup qualifying. I mean, and we appreciate you know, it. Friend, sounding board. I feel like I have filled a number of roles for U.S. fans. <laughs> And, and for Counselor. the Scuff family, yeah, you know, sometimes voice of reason, sometimes voice of uh, absolutely wrong optimism. That was more at the start of the of the qualification cycle, but we were all but, in that camp. But here we are. Um, no, it's it's good to be here. Glad to be back, and and looking forward to chopping it up. Yep, um, I recommend John's newsletter, Getting Concacaft, and have put the link to subscribe in the show notes. So please check it out and support another uh, fantastic. Well, he's a fantastic independent creator. We're both independent creators. Um, You're going to be in Mexico City on Thursday, right? Yes, I'm extremely excited. I have done qualifiers in the Azteca before, but never with the U.S. Um, It's always been other CONCACAF countries. So, uh, And I haven't been to Mexico City. I've been to Mexico. I haven't been to Mexico City since COVID-19. So I'm really excited to get back to one of my favorite cities in the world. And then I had my newsletter subscribers vote on where they wanted me to be on the last day of qualification. Um, because I'm hoping to tell a story, you know, of either dancing in the streets of joy of qualifying for the playoff or, you know, crying in the streets of despair. I'm not sure. Um, but but y'all voted. You, the newsletter subscribers, voted. And I'll be in Costa Rica. So um, it's, nice. it's a kind of America-centric heavy window for me, uh, which is actually kind of unusual. But uh, I'll be rolling yeah. a little bit with the U.S. team. I'm really looking forward to telling some of those stories from the road. We look forward to reading what you what you write. So let me start with... Um, Sort of a a big picture question. Rick Lund from just south of San Francisco asks, we know that the U.S. likely needs a four-point window to qualify and that the Panama game is a must-win. Can you give us a similar summary for how how their three opponents are viewing this window? Like what is the calculus to qualify for each? Now, I know that there's a lot of math that goes into that, but maybe you could give like a high-level sense of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mexico is in the exact same situation, right? They literally have the same number of points, the same record. So it's the same thing that they that is needed. Mexico has two home games. So their calculus is maybe a little different. Um, but one of those is against the U.S. that everyone is expecting to be a, a good and tough game. And of course, Mexico always has this like feeling of pressure and expectation that is always with the Mexico national team. So uh, I think that's another factor. But essentially, the calculus going into the window is the same. Um, Panama, you're looking at, you know... It's it's weird because even listening to Thomas Christensen, the manager, it's like they, they want to get nine points, but basically it's just eyes on Costa Rica, right? They're a point behind you. You just have to do better than them. That's basically yeah. it. You could still potentially sneak into the automatic spots. So there's this desire there to, to do that. But I think there, there's also a realistic, uh, you know, like there's realism there that it's not going to be easy. And then for Costa Rica, kind of the same. You're making eyes at, at Panama, seeing what they're doing, and you have to do better than they're doing. So, um, like, if you're Costa Rica, you have to get nine points. Even though you're only one point behind Panama right now, I think you have to get nine points. Maybe, you know, maybe that doesn't end up being the way the math works out. But there's just enormous pressure um, for Costa Rica. So 
Um, that's kind of where everyone is at. I mean, it's a, it's a little funny because it almost feels like for so long things have been settled. The North American teams have been kind of cruising the automatic places. Panama has been cruising in the playoff. But then you look at this final window and basically everyone who's still alive is concerned. Even Canada. Canada can't fall out of the playoff. But like I was, you know, uh, I'm doing a story on John Herdman that hopefully will appear uh, this week on a major publication. And uh you know, it's not over the line for them either, and and they're they're mm-hmm. they're cognizant as well that they like have to take care of business and get points. So that's the region. That's the beauty of this this tournament, and and sort of the weird uh, kind of compact the three match windows have created this situation where there's so much math to do, and uh, and everyone's doing it. <laughs> but I think there's pressure everywhere. There's worry everywhere. There's there's fear everywhere, and there's optimism everywhere because the path is still there for for all these teams. So. It's it's interesting, but I think everyone is kind of looking and saying like we got to get at least seven, maybe nine. So, so that that Canada piece you interviewed Herdman, you you uh, did you talk to him? I had a quick chat with Herdman uh, this week. Yes. Okay. Cool. Look forward to that. Good guy. I, I I look at like um, Panama and Costa Rica both play the U.S. and Canada in this window. Costa Rica plays the U.S. I mean plays Canada first. And um, Can- Panama plays Canada on the last match of the of the window of the qualifying cycle. So I, I mean, those every every single night this uh, this window is going to be just full of drama, man. Yeah, it's funny because like there's the dead rubber of dead rubbers. I think I think Jamaica Honduras is fi- is final day. Obviously, no one's really going to be watching that one from a big picture perspective. Right. But it's like you're expecting so much to get decided on the last day, and then it's like, oh yeah, those guys are playing too because they're already eliminated. You know, so um, no, everyone has something to play for. Every match except for that one is is crucial and will determine who's in Qatar. And this is kind of what we wanted, right? I mean, especially after after the pandemic had delayed everything, after Concacaf had to roll out all these different formats, like it kind of worked. We have exciting soccer in the last window. Maybe more nervous than a lot of fans want to be right now, but here we go. A sort of positive question, I think. Hef in Tampa asks: Are all of the potential fourth place finishers favorites to beat New Zealand? I think it's New Zealand who they will meet in the playoff. It'll be whoever wins the OFC qualification tournament, which is underway right now in Qatar. It's, they put it in one location because of all the, the intricacies of, the, of COVID in the, uh, in the Oceania region and the Pacific Islands. It should be New Zealand. I've watched those games because I'm a sicko. New Zealand doesn't have their full team yet because uh, the games actually started before the international break started. And then some of the guys who were part of the initial games are actually leaving to go back to A-League is my understanding because they were able to get out, but not for the entire break. Anyway, it's a, it's a huge mess. There's, there's teams that, uh, that have unfortunately had to pull out because of COVID that they picked up in Qatar, it seems, or got, you know, moving huh. around or whatever, but it should be New Zealand. And my answer is yes. I think that any of these CONCACAF teams should be the favorite, not least of which because they've been playing these games. You know, New Zealand hasn't really had the opportunity to, to do to do a lot of first team football. They haven't played a lot of high level stuff. They will maybe have the advantage because the playoff will be in Qatar, which is an environment they'll be familiar with. They'll know what hotels they want to stay at, what food they want to have, those kind of kind of behind the scenes things they'll already have scouted. But I do think that Panama, Costa Rica, my likely um, playoff teams, or, you know, I know the audience doesn't want to hear this. If the U S falls or if Mexico falls, uh, they should be the heavy favorite to, to beat New Zealand. That said, Margin for error is slim. And now that it's not home and home this year because of the switches with the pandemic, uh, it's not easy. So I think that 
the, the favorite. Yeah, they're the favorites, but certainly you'd rather. It's a one-off. Clinch. It's a one-off. Yeah, anything can happen. Anything can happen. All right, we're going to do this in a straightforward way chronologically. Let's start with uh, chronologically from the U.S. perspective. Let's start with uh, Mexico. They host the United States on Thursday night. Kind of mentioned this, but the two teams are tied at 21 points in second and third. The, with the U.S. getting the edge on goal difference, both nations obviously trail Canada, with tw- who has 25 points. Now, I wonder, you sort of answered this already, but do Mexico fans feel the same ex- anxiety as U.S. fans going into this window? Yeah, I, I think it's a little different just because of two factors. One is that Mexico didn't miss the World Cup in 2018. I think that's still like this looming shadow over U.S. fans, and I get it. I don't think that's going to kind of go away, or I guess the sun will come out and take that shadow away until qualification is clinched until the X is by the U.S. name. And I understand that. Um, But Mexico doesn't have that same anxiety because even though they had to go through the playoff path in 2014, I don't think there was ever a realistic feeling of we're missing it. We're not going to make the World Cup. And there's also a bit of arrogance there. Uh, You know, the, the anxiety and the fear doesn't enter as much, I think, because there's the expectation of, of course, we're going to win. We're going to beat the U.S. at Azteca. We always do. We're going to beat El Salvador at the Azteca. They're bad and we're good. And it's the Azteca. We're going to beat Honduras. They're bad. We're good. You know, I think there is this, maybe arrogance is the wrong word, but like a a, a confidence earned or not that, nah, we got this, no problem. And in a lot of ways, fair enough. You know, Mexico hasn't missed the World Cup like the U.S. did in 2018. Last time they missed was because of sanctions and suspension. Um, And they are a good team and they do win at the Azteca. So I, I understand the confidence heading into this group of games. I think there is a little bit of nervousness from Mexico fans, especially some of the, you know, I wrote on the newsletter in December, there's kind of a new species, I guess, of journalist or fan in Mexico that's doing a lot more sort of digging into advanced metrics and looking at tactics. And um, that's a little bit new. Um at least from my perspective. And I think some of this kind of mm. fan that digs a little deeper into the game maybe is starting to feel those underlying anxieties that the American fan seems to be feeling. But uh, for the most part, I think that there's just expectation. Why wouldn't we make it? We're Mexico. And if they don't, then you'll get kind of the, the full brunt of the anger and consequences that, that, that follow. What's the likelihood that, this is a question from Christian in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, does Tata lose his job if he loses to the US? And let me just expand on that and say, uh, or or does he lose his job if they lose to the U.S. and they fall to the, to fourth place? Because obviously he's going to lose his job if they fall to fifth place after this window. Right. right. I, I don't think Tata loses his job because, first of all, the Mexico national team administrators have stuck by him. You know, they could have fired him after the second loss to the U.S. this summer. They could have fired him after the loss to the U.S. in qualification. The reports are, these are all kind of just reports, but that he offered his resignation, at least to the players. He told the players after the Canada loss in Canada, hey, if we can't do this with me at the helm, if I'm doing things wrong, if you guys don't believe in me, I'll resign. I'm out. I said, no, we love the project. We love you. Again, according to reports, I'm sure that's paraphrased. Um, But there's been the opportunity to move on from Tata Martino and Mexico's federation president and the club owners that have a lot of power and influence as well, have, have wanted to stick with Tata Martino. You know, I think we talked about it when it was the U.S.-Mexico game, but so much of the Tata Martino job is simply dependent on, you know, you talk about the one-off playoff being high stakes, but so much for Tata Martino is if you get to that quinto partido, if you get out of the group and win the game at the World Cup, then you're a success. If you don't, you're a failure. But until they get to that point or until that point is not reachable, it's Tata Martino's job. And I, I think that, you know, kind of, changing horses mid stream. Is that the expression? I don't know if that's the expression. Mid race, mid race. Horses mid race. I don't know. Well, 
you know, firing your manager before the playoff, I'm not sure how that helps you. You know, you have this big project and, and maybe it didn't work, but, I, you know, the only, I could potentially see them switch. But even then you say, who goes? Uh, Larcamon, the, the, the manager at Puebla, has been this kind of like sexy outsider pick. Everyone loves his football. He plays great football. He's a really smart guy. No experience on the international stage. I think it'd be bonkers to toss him in there. Last time around when Mexico fell to the playoff, it was Miguel Herrera that was kind of the, the firefighter putting out the fire. Got the job done, worked out really well. But, you know, I think he's pretty happy with Tigres. Maybe he would answer the call. But then you're kind of just running back what you did in 2014. I think it's Tata Martino's job, even if they lose to the U.S., even if they fall into the playoff. Uh, I think it's Martino's ship, and I think they kind of go down with it or not. Um, I know that's surprising because we're used to Mexico being this reactionary country. They fire the coach on, at, at the drop of a hat. But I really do think this new administration is doing a lot of things differently. I think they're more progressive than, than previous administrations, more plugged in with kind of the global footballing landscape and how things typically work. And I think with that comes a little bit more introspection about uh, who's leading the national team. Tata Martino has a project. Tata Martino has a core established. He has a style of play that he's put in place for three years. And generally, Mexico has gotten good results. So I, I don't think so. I, I know it sounds crazy and people expect it to be Tata out. And I think the fans probably would want that if they even, you know, if they lose to the US, even before these next two qualifiers. But I think it's Tata's until Qatar. And after that, the success will be judged by what he does there. I mean, they really ought to beat Honduras and El Salvador. 100%. I mean, yeah. So you wrote about this, these next couple questions in your Monday newsletter, which again, is really good. I mean, it's so, it's so useful for me as a, as a U.S. fan to see this kind of stuff. Um, But we know it's going to be Edson Alvarez and Ache Ache in the midfield, Hector Herrera. Who's going to be that third one with Andres Guardado out? Yeah, I think it's going to be Eric Gutierrez, uh, PSV midfielder, and he's got a big opportunity because Guardado, you want his experience. He was in South Africa. You know, you, you, this is a guy who knows what it means to play at the World Cup. Um, but, you, you know, it's, it's, he showed his age. And I think that that's concerning. And Hector Herrera, he's old, man. He is he's old. An old man. He's old. He's old. He's, he's a little older than me, and that's saying something. Um, so, no, you're looking at a guy who, who has been key, who has been critical, still does it for you sometimes on the field. But like in the games against Canada... You saw the Mexico midfield really struggle with, with the speed and transition in midfield. And a lot of that, I think, was down to Guardado. So I think Gutierrez has a big opportunity. But first, he has to win the job because Luis Romo could step in. You could see Tata Martino kind of, kind of stick him in there. He's a player who typically plays a deeper role, but, but is good going forward. Has a nice shot. I've seen him hit long-range bombs before. And then Charlie Rodriguez, who usually plays on the right side, is another candidate. Martino likes him as well. Um, Another kind of good two-way player. I don't think he's as strong defensively as Romo. I don't think he's as strong defensively as Guti. But at the same time, he's a, he's a potential candidate. So, um, yeah, like you mentioned, I, I wrote about it on Monday. But, you know, looking at his, his recent form, he struggled with injuries in the past. But right now, it looks like he's fit. And he and Irving Lozano were running buddies. They were boys. You know, they, they'd done the Dragon Ball Z celebration where they like link, uh, you know, link hands to make the heart. I'm not a Dragon Ball guy, so I don't know if that's right. But they, <laughs> I, they've don't, done, I don't know either. They've done the celebration at not one but two clubs, you know. So they're, they're friends. But, but as Lozano has taken these steps but you, and but become... Pachuca and PSV. Right? Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and as they've taken these steps, like uh, Guti kind of got left behind. His, his career sort of stalled. And so this is a big chance, I think, for him to say no. You need to start me at the national team. I'm doing it. 
but the fact that he has that link with Osano on the left side, the fact that he has a left-footed profile, the fact that he um, is extremely sure with the pass, he, he's really good at finding where to put the ball, rarely gives away a, a bad ball, like every player now and then, but um, I think gives him a little bit of a leg up and, and really could be a player that Mexico should be rooting for to, to emerge as an option at, at that position. He's had a really good run of form at PSV Eindhoven as well, right? The, um... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't starting for the start of the year and then kind of got over injuries and got the opportunity and, and he's been good. He's been good. He got applauded off the field in the 5-0 victory last weekend. You know, nobody's going to be mad with anybody's performance when you win 5-0, but at the same time, you know, that you'd like to think the Dutch fans in Eindhoven wouldn't just give anybody a standing ovation. So I don't know. They don't maybe, give that away cheaply. No. <laughs> maybe we're reading too much into that, but uh, no, good performances. And and that's why I think he's he's a player that could be influential, especially against the U.S. midfield that's not going to be at its strongest. Mm-hmm. It worries me a little bit. Um, I did not know until I read your newsletter that he was on a good run of form for PSV. Because see, I, I'd always thought of him as sort of a marginal member of the starting 11, like, a, uh, you know, occasionally starting, but not too often. But that's mm-hmm. not the case. Uh, do you think Julian Araujo is going to start at right back against the U.S.? I do. I do. Um, it was kind of crazy. I, I wrote a little bit about this in the newsletter that's not out yet, so I'm not, not upset that you haven't read it yet, though. But uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. The, uh, the friendly match against Chile in Austin, I really kind of thought that's eh, kind of a joke of a friendly. You know, I went down, it's two and a half hours from my house, three hours. My brother lives down there, had a good time, you know, covered the game as well as I could, but didn't really think, you know, anything of it. And now Araujo is potentially starting against the U.S. Santiago Jimenez, a forward who had a good game in, in that friendly, is on this roster as one of the forward depth options. Honestly, to me, he's kind of like, the, the, the profile is not the same, but he's kind of the Mexican Pepe. When you look at, you know, a guy who's young, getting opportunities at the club, people are starting to say, Ooh, this guy might have something different. This guy might be able to be the nine of the future. That's Santiago Jimenez. He's in this roster. And... uh Jumping a little bit ahead to to some of the new faces, uh, Israel Reyes of, of Puebla. Puebla is doing so well in the league. I mentioned uh, Nicolas Larcamon, their manager. Uh, he was in that friendly, played only 25 or 30 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, but all of a sudden he's on the roster. So it seems like Tata Martino really used that December friendly against Chile, a game that I thought was going to be kind of a nothing game. It seems he took it quite seriously and has used it to kind of refresh the roster with some of these new faces. And going back to Araujo, he's one of them. Right back has been a position of, I don't know what you call it, suck. <laughs> it's been a bad spot for Mexico. Luis Chaca Rodriguez was, was looking like the starter, but fans never liked him. And he definitely was good for a mistake or two a game. Uh, you saw Sanchez from Club America come in not necessarily able to translate his game from, from America to the international level for whatever reason. And Araujo has been kind of a sure set of hands, a sure set of feet, I guess. And I think gives Martino some confidence. So to me, saying it's his job to lose might seem crazy, but I do think that he has every opportunity going into this camp and, and, and in these training sessions this week to stake his claim as the starter, not just again, kind of like Gutierrez, not just for this game, but maybe for the foreseeable future and maybe even for the World Cup, which what a come up for a guy that, you know, six months ago, we're just thinking, oh, yeah, he's a good player for the Galaxy. Yeah. And Shaka Rodriguez, he's not even on this roster, right? Has he just sort of faded out completely of the picture? 
Yeah. Because he's get, not hurt, is he? No, no, but not getting minutes with Tigres. You know, Miguel Herrera kept him on the bench in the Clásico Regio this weekend for, for Tigres against Monterrey, their biggest rival, cross-town rival. People, I'm sure, watch those games from, from CONCACAF Champions League and those types of tournaments. So, uh, yeah, he's not getting minutes. He hasn't excelled when he's been with Mexico the last several times. And he's a guy who I really did have projected as recently as last month as kind of the starter for Mexico at the World Cup. And now might not even be on the plane. So obviously things change fast in soccer. Form changes, performances dictate everything. And what have you done for me lately? But what he's done for Mexico and for Tigres lately is not much. And so he's not on the squad. And he's 32 years old, so wrong okay, side of that. Okay, all right, all right. Is there, is there any reason to think it won't be uh, Lozano, Jimenez, and Tecatito across the front line? No. I think that's the, the, the attacking trident. Unless Tata Martino decides to save one of those guys for a later game, or there are actual fitness concerns. You know, we saw Raul miss time in the last window. Uh, Tecatito also came in. Tocado, they say, touched. Uh, with a knock, I guess we'd say. So it's possible there's some sort of, I don't think so. I think it's those guys. I think it's Raul as yep. the nine. Chucky to the left, Tecatito to the right. They'll switch. They'll give the right back and left back everything they can handle. They're great players. It's a fearsome attacking trident, but I will say we haven't necessarily seen them show the kind of chemistry that you might expect when you talk about three guys that are in pretty darn good form for top European clubs. And that's what they are. So despite the fact they play together all the time, despite the fact that they're all in really good form, I don't know that we've seen this moment where we say, "Oof, they're really doing it. They're really all putting it together at the same time. U.S. fans hope it's not this window, but I guess if there's one thing that you can take away from that Trident looking so fearsome, it's that they've been paper tigers is harsh, but they've they haven't necessarily lived up to the weight of the clubs they're playing at and how well they play at those clubs when they've all three come together for Mexico, at least for me. Right. They haven't unleashed. There hasn't been like a, a yeah. blizzard of goals or anything. Um, Nate from Oregon asks, and this has to do with your, what you were saying about Santi Jimenez earlier, but how much does uh, Rogelio Funes Mori's absence hurt? Uh, maybe yeah. not much given Jimenez's uh, ascendancy yeah and i think nate even sort of mentioned that like funes mori wasn't in great form i think even worse for the national team he fit in really well for a need that mexico had at the gold cup specifically where raul jimenez wasn't going to play wasn't back to to full fitness yet after his you know extremely scary head fracture skull fracture um but i'm not sure we see funes mori really with a place in the mexico national team in the future i think jimenez is this kind of breakout candidate and I don't know, like, he just doesn't seem to have it when he's wearing the national team shirt. He's a different player, I think, when he's with Rayados. He's a different player in the club level in general. So, like, it sounds harsh, but to me, it's a blessing in disguise that he's not available for this. I think it's it's way better for Mexico's present and future that you get these younger guys in. There's still, like, Henry Martin is in the squad. Also not going to do it. Also not the kind of guy you need. Also not good enough to to be on the World Cup roster, to be honest. But he might make it because the depth isn't necessarily there. And that's why Funes Mori kept getting, you know, he got nationalized and called in. But I, I yeah. think it's a bit of a blessing in disguise for Mexico that he's not in this camp. Okay. And who do you think will start at center back? Um, it seems like Nestor Araujo, Hector Moreno, and Cesar Montes have gotten most of the minutes lately. But 
Yeah, it's absolutely baffling to me the way that Tata Martino is utilizing or not utilizing Johan Vasquez. He just doesn't seem to like him. He doesn't seem to rate him. And he's playing well in Serie A all the time. So it's very confusing when you look at his profile, when you look at the, the lack of left-footed center backs that exist in all of world football. You've got this guy who could play on the left that could, you know, could be the guy. And yet, like, it doesn't seem like Martino likes him for whatever reason. So I think, again, Mexico might get a little bit of, like, it sounds dumb, but like to say like, oh, well, they got lucky because Tata Martino will now have to make the right decision. Nestor Araujo took a little bit of a knock. We're not sure about his fitness. He's in the roster. He should be good, but it's possible he doesn't play. So you could see like a Vasquez Montes, but you could also see like a Moreno. Montes, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I think a lot does depend on the health of Nestor Raujo. He's been kind of uh, the old faithful for Tata. He's been a consistent presence. So, um, yeah, if I were him, I'd put Vasquez as my first, first, first name on the team sheet for the defense. But that's not the case. So, Especially at the Azteca against the U.S., I wonder if he leans on experience and goes with Moreno as his left center back and then maybe tosses uh, Montes over there on the right. But I'm not sure. We talked about we talked a little bit on our on our podcast about how you know when when Pulisic scored the game winner against Mexico in Cincinnati, he did it over the head of Luis Dominguez. Um, I think that's the right name. Juan Carlos and, Dominguez Cata. Okay. Yeah. 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 He's out. Um, he's injured. And he's injured. And and Greg's point, my co-host's point, was like he's not sure that's going to happen if Nestor Araujo is there. You know. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, but the the thing is, and like one of the reasons that I've been so puzzled by the Vasquez situation is that you had this guy even when like before he was really playing a lot for Genoa, you had him in your camp and you could have played him in World Cup qualifiers in like El Salvador to kind of get him ready for that game against the United States. And instead, he just kind of got tossed and like every defender in that game got tossed into the fire. And so I just don't understand why you didn't have like a little more like savvy rotation or, or sort of like giving guys an opportunity because it's Vasquez Dominguez as a center back pairing in that game. And they hadn't really played together. I mean, I don't know what their chemistry was like, but like, you know, and, and it didn't work. And it seems to me that that's gotten Vasquez in Tata's doghouse. At the same time, it's like, why wouldn't you put him in against, the, I think they had El Salvador and Honduras in the window before. Toss him into one of those games that you won easily. Give him an opportunity to start or even to just like play minutes. I don't think he saw any time. I think it was, it was Montes Moreno for 90 minutes of maybe both. Huh. And, and I just didn't, or no, Araujo had to play the game before because he got suspended. But I just don't understand why he didn't put Vasquez in. And now it seems like he's being punished for this sort of like mistake of inexperience. So I am fascinated. Yeah. I'm fascinated um, because it could be Moreno Montes again, um, which is not what we saw against the US. But I think, Vasquez is the best defender Mexico has, and he showed it in Europe, you know, consistently. But we'll see. Obviously, Martino has a different perspective, and he's a lot smarter than me. So maybe it'll go the right, right way, and maybe it'll work out. But one last center back question: You mentioned Reyes earlier, uh, playing for Puebla. Uh, he got his first cap in that friendly in December. Came came in off the bench. Is there any chance he plays in this game, or that that seems like it would be crazy? No, but... I don't think so. I actually like I. I'm I'm interested that he's in the camp. I think, you know, Martino wouldn't just toss a spot in just to toss one in, but there's been a lot of like 
weird. Tata doesn't watch Liga Mekis. Tata doesn't watch MLS or like local soccer because there's players that kind of are on good teams that don't get called in. I don't think he's bowing to the pressure here, but I do think there's a little bit of a, ah, maybe I should give someone from Puebla a call. And I legitimately think he likes, uh, you know, what he's seen. But I'd be really surprised to see Reyes get minutes. Uh, we just haven't seen much of him at this level. And as good as Puebla. What kind of center back is he? Puebla is one of those teams where like they're extremely good this year, which is cool and fun. Um, but I don't see a lot of them, to be honest, because they're, they're kind of like, they're not, they're not big in the narrative department, except for now, because they're pretty good. Okay. Yeah, I won't demand that you um, <laughs> watch every single Liga Amekis game. Um, so Jesse, Jesse Howe in Zihuatanejo says, what's your go-to taco in Mexico City? Al Pastor is the OG of OGs, but for my money, Tacos de Suadero is tops. Yeah. Um, no, I go Al Pastor. I, I, I mean, I lived in Tijuana, so like there's a bit of a, there's, there's like a kind of regional variant, I guess, to Al Pastor, Alobada, which is like layered with guacamole, which is delicious. Um, and not as much of the, this, now and then you'll see a pineapple on top of the trompo, on top of the spit, but it's not as big of a deal in, in, on the Pacific coast as it is in Mexico City. To be honest, like I think the best thing you can do is to just to eat tacos, uh, but to figure out what the place specializes in. In Mexico City, there's tacos Arabe, which are come from the, the Lebanese immigrant influence. Um, hmm. And it's like not super easy to find. Puebla actually has them, but it's not super easy to find them in a lot of other parts of Mexico. So I like to do it some tacos Arabe whenever I'm, whenever I'm in Mexico City, just because I never really get that otherwise. Um, my favorite spot is a spot called... Uh, El Vilcito, which is like a, a, a car shop, a mechanic, like a body shop by day. And, uh, and just a taqueria by night with some really, really good carne asada, really, really good uh, al pastor. So um, I told people on a different show that I did. Sorry, fellas, I hope you're not offended. Um, I'm not. But uh, I've been seeing other people that if people want to tweet at me with what neighborhood they're staying in, I can usually give them a taco recommendation. But sometimes people just be like, hey, John, tacos in Mexico City. And that's like asking me like bagels in New York. Like. I don't know, man, go down to the corner. Like, I'm sure there's something, but if you tell me yeah. your neighborhood, I can get you something more specific. But uh, I, I just try and eat. I'm not picky, man. So I just go with whatever the specialty of the place is. Okay. Awesome. Making me hungry. Uh, one more question. This is sort of a general World Cup qualifying question. Also from Jesse, uh, who is a great friend of the podcast. Two yellow cards leading to a one-game suspension over the course of 14 games seems to him harsh. How does that stack up against other regions? and other high-profile leagues. I did a little research on this, so you don't have to answer the oh, whole question. But I was like, you, I don't know. <laughs> I'm the CONCACAF guy. All, uh, all yeah. I know is what I know. <laughs> well, in UEFA, in UEFA, it was two yellow cards leads to a suspension, but over either eight or ten games, depending on um, you know which group you were in. And I could not figure out what it was in Comeball, uh, which plays 18 games. So I, that's the best answer I got. <laughs> Yeah, it does Let's seem harsh. On. It does seem harsh. But uh, I, I like when guys are there. I like when guys are playing. I also thought Hector Herrera was suspended for this game until like a day or two ago. So uh, I'm wrong. He only had one yellow card. It seems harsh, but uh, good to see guys on the field. I like, I like seeing everyone's best. I know. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I'm, I'm coming from this neutral perspective, but still. Yeah, it, seem, it seems harsh to me, too. I, I don't know. I don't know what this... I mean, make it three. Make it three yellow cards. I don't know if anybody does that, but... All right, before we get to Panama and Costa Rica, let me plug the Patreon. We are an ad-free podcast. You can help the long-term viability of the enterprise by subscribing on Patreon. You get 
In exchange, the patron-only Monday reviews with Waki and Vince, and you get access to the Discord, which is hard to understand until you get into it, but can be a lot of fun. The link to subscribe and get all of that is in the show notes. <laughs> is in the show notes. Uh, thank you to all our patrons. Panama. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go I was going to say I'm intimidated by the Discord, but I'm like feel extremely welcome in the Scuff Discord. So get in there, people. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that uh, endorsement. Panama. They're on 17 points in fourth place, so they need to make up some ground on the U.S. and Mexico if they want to auto qualify. They're also one, only one point ahead of Costa Rica, as you mentioned. So their situation is touchy. Um, Ryan Madden in New York asks, Panama plays eliminated Honduras on Thursday. Did Honduras call a full-strength squad? Any wrinkles from that one? Honduras did not call a full-strength squad. Um, it seems like Bolio Gomez wants to kind of build for the future. He's apparently the guy for them going forward, which I think is a choice. Um <laughs> But there's a there's a couple kind of the uh, the the old regulars who are missing. I saw Romel Kyoto kind of saying to like that the Panamanian press needed to treat Honduras with more respect or be a little more almost afraid than Honduras was kind of the, the than than they are of Honduras right now uh, was kind of like the vibe of of what he was saying. But um, no Elise, um, no David Flores. There's like, it's a significantly weakened team from my perspective, which if you have zero points and have no chance to qualify, why would you make some of these guys come back across the Atlantic Ocean? Why not try some of the younger players? I don't think Gomez is doing anything wrong, but um, I also don't think Honduras is going to necessarily do the U.S. any favors. Okay. Maybe they need maybe they need to make some changes, bring in some young blood and I mean, what they've been doing isn't working, you know? <laughs> That's a hundred percent true. That's a hundred percent true. So um back to Panama. Who who has emerged as a key player for Panama in this cycle in your in your mind? I mean they've had they've been they've been awfully good, right? And well, maybe why don't we just start by you just assessing how they've been. No, I, I think they have been good. I mean, until this kind of Costa Rica surge, I think that Panama has put itself as the clear fourth team, and that's that's impressive. In theory, when the World Cup expands, that's good enough to qualify every single year without too much difficulty, and even more so when the three North American teams are hosting it next time around. But I think it's a big credit to Panama's infrastructure, to to the federation officials, and to some of the players that were part of that generation that qualified in 2018, because the narrative around Panama before that qualification was, ah, it's a baseball country. They don't really care about soccer. You've got some guys who, who are good, who, who kind of transcend. And now you're seeing this boom of players. Oh, I'm hoping to write in the newsletter, there's more than a dozen Panamanian players in Venezuela right now in the domestic league. Okay, it's not the Premier League or even MLS, but still you have more than a dozen players playing abroad. That's impressive. And then you have guys like Ismael Diaz standing out in Ecuador in, in some of the, the, the uh, continental competitions. Gabby Torres is playing in South America. And you've got guys in the second division in Spain who are also doing really well. So uh, I, I think there's kind of, I expected a bigger drop-off from Panama, almost a Honduras-esque drop-off when their kind of golden generation went away. And these guys have been able to sustain it. So I think it is impressive what Panama's done. 
I know that like kind of U.S. fans seem to be like not joking, but like sort of like, hey, we got to root against Panama because like if they don't make it, we'll make the World Cup. Sure, but Panama has been fun. It's been a good story in CONCACAF and, and I would like to see them again as a neutral observer, but someone who loves the region. I think I'm actually jumping ahead here, but I would like to see them make the playoff. I think that it's like a, a good story yeah, and a credit to like a, a sustained development plan that we don't see happen enough in the region. They've also been, I mean, if it's between them and Costa Rica for me, um, Panama's been the better team in qualifying. They don't have I mean, Kaylor Navas, which is like the cheat code of CONCACAF, right? If yeah. some other goalkeeper as good as they are is in net for Costa Rica. We're not talking about this scenario. So we'll get to Costa Rica in a second. But I, I do agree that Panama has kind of been the team that plays better football, the team that approaches games with a savvier game plan, and a team that, like, you're asking, hey, like, who's, who are some guys that have kind of stood out? You know, there's been this, even Ismail Diaz, it's interesting that he's back because he was, like, a hot prospect for Panama back in the day. I remember, like, when he was 19 saying, oh, yeah, like, this is the guy who's going to be the star for Panama. And it never really panned out. He was with Porto B. He bounced around some small... European like development side and now all of a sudden he goes to Ecuador and he's in great form and he's back with the national team so you know a guy like that it's cool to see him uh, take the steps Edgar Yol Barcenas is another guy who he's getting older you know he's, he's, uh, he's almost 30 um, but he's kind of you know bounced around Mexico for a while looked like a big prospect in, in CONCACAF Champions League way back in the day with Arabe Unido and now seems to be developing into a player who is dangerous on the international level been a good player with his vision, creating a lot of opportunities. Quite frankly, I thought Panama was going to be terrible in front of goal. And because of some of the clear-cut chances that, that, that Barcenas and a few others have kind of helped create, I think we've seen their forwards perform better than expected. And that's why they're in this position. So credit to some of those guys who have emerged because Panama is competing. I saw Barcenas hit a screamer a couple weeks ago in uh in spain second division of spain Leganes, i think is who plays for so who who's who's the first um who's the first couple names that come to mind when you think of like players that have sort of stepped up for panama in this cycle yeah barcenas for sure is there another one i'd say is andres andrade the center back uh when he's been fit panama has been way better um you know he's hmm. a guy who plays in the bundesliga and like actually plays in the bundesliga and I think he's kind of one of those guys who is one of the reasons that I started following CONCACAF like I did more than a decade ago, where it's just like you play these teams, the U.S. goes, and you don't hear much about him, but he's in the Bundesliga. Like, this guy is good. Yeah. This guy can ball. So uh, he's been a really good uh, piece at the center of Panama's defense. Again, has been in and out because of injuries. We've seen a couple of, of absences for either him or uh, some of the other center backs that Panama has. Fidel Escobar has missed time. Uh, Harold Cummings, I think, has missed time. I don't think I'm mistaken in saying that. There was one time, there was a game I remember where three center backs got injured. That wasn't good. Um, but I think those guys have, have really come through uh, when you look at kind of this next generation. And uh, Carrasquilla is the other one from the Dynamo. We'll see if that's where his club future is, but uh, kind of two way do it all midfielder. Panama has been able to produce um, kind of hard nosed midfielders before. And, you know, Armando Cooper, Godoy, um, before them, Gabriel Gomez. But I, I don't know that they've had a player who combines some of the elements as well as, as Carrasquilla does. So 
Uh, he's been another kind of breakout player and, and another reason that I think that they're, they've been able to sustain some of the success because um, you really do see some of these guys kind of rising to the occasion. And, and uh, it's a good team. It's, yeah. I get why I was, they're where they are. I see, you know, Anibal Godoy is interesting to me because I, 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 every time I see him play, whether that's in MLS or, you know, with the Panama national team, I'm always, I always think he looks good like pretty good at least. And and yet he's just he's not famous. He's not um he's a he's a journeyman in MLS. Seems like he's just goes around from club to club. I don't know. He's yeah, an interesting I, guy. I, I agree. I think that, that what I'm saying that speaks to what I'm saying about Coco, about Carrasquilla, where it's like he just has them different he does more than one thing. I'm not trying to say it always a one trick pony. I think he does but he does one job and does it well. Whereas Carrasquilla, I think, you know, he can start attacks. He can go mm-hmm. forward and, and add another element. He can make a run if he needs to. He can, can put balls in good places through the air or on the ground. So I, I think that's maybe the difference. And that's the kind of player that Panama hasn't necessarily had. And maybe some of that comes from the football culture being established and academies being a thing and people caring about how the national team looks and plays. So I think, it, you know, his emergence and other younger players like that kind of emerging speaks to Panama saying, we're here for the long haul. We've got, we've got a plan. And it's not just Blas Perez, Jaime Penedo, uh, Felipe Valoy. We're more than that. We're a soccer country. And so I, I guess that's why I think Panama has been so interesting. But with that said, they're not in the World Cup yet. And they might miss the playoff because it's entirely possible that they, they lose these games. Are they likely to rotate against... They play Honduras first, right? They're, are they likely to rotate in that game and assume that they can beat them at home? And It's tough because they haven't really... Christensen, I think, has been the kind of biggest violator of this idea that, like, hey, you, you really should probably freshen your squad. But it has kind of bitten them at, at certain times. You've seen, like I, like I mentioned, like there have been defensive injuries. Katarski got hurt. Uh, there have been load problems and Panama like Canada remember they had to go through the first round and the second round to get here so these guys have a lot of extra miles on their legs they've been traveling they've been playing for a long time uh, but they haven't really rotated as much as I think you'd like them to if you're a Panama fan but also I think that speaks to maybe a bit of a lack of depth Um, the players who play need to play and are playing so I think it'd be a bit of a risk for for Christensen to, to rotate and say, ah, oh, we can beat this Honduras B. Because if you don't get those points, then what have you done? Like, then, I mean, you'd kind of, yeah. you know, if you, if you, as much as you might want to focus on a game against the US or, or Canada later, you need all three points from Honduras no matter what. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see guys coming in, having played 90 minutes and starting against the US. Okay. Well, that bodes well. Should we expect Panama to, this is from Del Maguey in Austin, down there in Texas. How should we expect Panama to defend against the U.S. on Sunday? Will they be in a low block to try and grind out a, a 0-0 draw, or will they come out trying to match our attempt at possession with a high press? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, think, uh, I think it depends. Maybe a wishy-washy answer, but I think it depends on the table. Because, again, I think there's just so many variables, and I, I've seen... A lot of people have like very sort of like, okay, on Sunday, it's going to look like this. And I'm just kind of like, maybe, 
but I don't know. Like I, I, I think like Thursday could go so many different ways. Sunday could go so many different ways. It's, it's difficult to kind of project what the need will be. I would say that Panama is comfortable in a defending posture and trying to hit with quick transitions. Barcenas, I think, is really, really underrated on the counterattack. It's, and, you know, you look at some of the wingers, like Quintero. Like, when you, when you watch some of the games that, that Panama's played, especially on the road, they're a good counterattacking team. But I don't necessarily think that it's, it's going to be bunker for nil-nil. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the posture. But again, if something goes wrong for them against Honduras, if something goes wrong for the U.S. against Mexico, I don't know. Like maybe there's, maybe there's an opportunity there to play a different style, which Panama can do as well. That's a really good point, though, that Thursday will determine a lot about Sunday. Let's move. I, let me do one more uh, programming note. We're gonna, you guys have heard me say this, but we're going to have five aside on Sunday morning in Orlando, the day of the Panama game. 10 a.m., John H. Jackson Community Center. Everybody's welcome. Uh, it's just pick up for free. And then we're going to have a tailgate in the afternoon from 1 p.m. until the game. Uh, I imagine most people will probably be getting there at 2.33. So, uh, so join us for that, too. Look for the scuffed flag flying on the top of a black SUV. And let's talk about Costa Rica. They're aging. They have exactly one player at a good club in Europe, and Kaylor Navas, of course. And they've played a lot of uninspiring soccer in the past seven months, and yet here they are with a fighting chance at qualification. To what do you owe their success in staying alive and getting back into the picture? It's funny because Luis Fernando Suarez, the manager, has done something that I think would typically be viewed as regressive. If Burhalter did this, good Lord, the knives would be out. But I think he's refocused on the domestic talent and gotten those players in more often. If you look at this roster, I believe it's 20 players called in that are based in the domestic league. I think seven of them are from Herediano, who's having a garbage season. But you can have a garbage season and still have great players. And I think Herediano actually fits in that camp. So Suarez has had these microcyclos, the microcycles, mini camps, I guess we call them during the week, that I think have really allowed him an opportunity to get to know the country's players that maybe he didn't know as well as he should have when he first arrived. I think his posture has changed. He alienated maybe his best attacker, Manfred Ugalde, who has said, I'm not representing this national team while that guy is leading. Uh, Giancarlo Gonzalez. He, Ugalde did that before things turned around too, right? Yes. He might, I wonder if he regrets that decision. I don't know. I mean... Maybe, maybe they patch things over if Costa Rica is headed to Qatar, either for the playoff or for the World Cup. But I think, you know, he came in with the wrong ideas about Costa Rica, about how to treat these players, about where the good players were, about how to work the system. Like, he got it wrong, but to his credit, he's adapted. They're still not playing amazing soccer for me. Way too often, it's Navas, Joel Campbell, and nine more guys. And you're not going to have success like that. But I think with some of these infusion of local talent, with some of those guys raising the game, and with him figuring out a little bit, everyone's profile a little better, realizing a guy like Brian Ruiz is, is great for leadership, but not great for scoring goals. You know, I, I think that's kind of keyed Costa Rica's resurgence and, and opportunity to get back into the picture. They're going to drop points, right? They're going to drop points in this window. <laughs> they got to. Yes. They're not going to get a nine-point window. I don't think they get a nine-point window. And I think the, the fly in the ointment for them is Canada. 
Panama can kind of dream that Canada is going to be able to, you know, just be absolutely drunk off their ass celebrating qualifying for the World Cup when they go down to the to the third game, the final game of the of the cycle. They're not going to do that. They're professionals, but you know, they, they right. there might I be a, the a, a literal and figurative hangover. Canada still needs points. <laughs> so I don't think they're going to just roll into Costa Rica and say, nah, whatever, we don't care about this one and lose. And again, you have this Costa Rica team that attacking-wise has been punchless without Campbell. Campbell's been amazing. He's been really, really good. He can play on the wing. He can play through the middle. And he's in incredible form. He looks great for Realos right now. This is probably the best he's looked in in years. And yes, we are talking about the guy who was on the Arsenal roster and getting loaned out over and over right. again. Yes, he's still around. Yes, he's still playing in CONCACAF. And he's doing it really well. He's but not even that old yet. Either, he's not, either he's, he's not, like not not thirty yet, is he? I don't know. That's a good one. I'm not sure. To let be me honest. check. But, let me check but, real quick. But he's but he's the fulcrum. He's the guy that everything goes through. He's the guy who has to be good. Suarez has tried to plug and play other options. They haven't necessarily worked. So um, I think Canada drops points. Excuse me. I think Costa Rica drops points against Canada. And then what do you do? I mean, then you know, like I said, Thursday influences Sunday so much. In part because if you drop those points, are you still alive? Probably. Are you? Do you have a real shot at it? Maybe. But it's it's possible things look quite different when the U.S. visits. He is. He's twenty nine. Campbell is twenty nine. Yeah. I'm suddenly feeling so Canadian. Back to this question about who has fizzled away and who has who has emerged in this qualifying campaign. This that which came from Marcus Chai and Sonoma from Chasing a Cup. It, it looks to me like some of their defenders have kind of been phased out in in this cycle. Duarte and Gonzalez. Gonzalez said no, thank you, and Duarte is hurt. So okay. you have seen sort of I think a, a different core. The other big one is Christian Gamboa, who last window had this sort of sketchy injury. I don't like to cast aspersions on potential injuries, but he had played the weekend before and then wasn't in the call-up. And when journalists asked, hey, why didn't you call in Gamboa? It was, oh, he's injured, which, okay. Um, But he just played. So that was kind of confusing. And now he has COVID. So he's not in this group either. He's by far the best right back that Costa Rica has um, to offer. And he just hasn't been there since the November window, I believe. So hmm. there's definitely some frustration there um, as far as his availability. Look, if you have COVID, you have COVID. I mean, what are you going to do? But um, there's frustration there for sure. But I think some of the defenders that are there have actually kind of raised their game. You know, our buddy Francisco Calvo, I know that he's kind of a meme in MLS, but he's been solid. Uh, Kendall Waston, our old friend uh, from MLS, has been very good. Uh, I think he's really done well <laughs> and really puts his heart into the game. Like there were games early in the cycle where he was their best attacking option. They'd throw him on in like the 10, you know, with 10 minutes left to like go try and knock a header in off of a long throw or something. And he'd get it done sometimes. So uh, I, th- I think he's been kind of a heart and soul type player. So yeah, I think that that. The, def- the defense, you know, some of those guys have fizzled out. Talk about some veterans that have fizzled. Brian Ruiz, bless his heart. Great guy. Was a super fun player to watch. Just doesn't have it in the tank. We saw in that attempted counterattack against the U.S. It's not a good one. You can refer to it as an attempted counterattack. Because um, <laughs> he just got caught, right? 
KG of him to steal the ball away, but uh, <laughs> after that, it was all downhill. Yeah. You mentioned Calvo, Calvo being a meme in MLS. I've never really understood that. I've always kind of enjoyed the way he plays. I mean, he had, he he's, he makes some mistakes now and then, but I, I used to live in Minneapolis. I went to see some of those Minnesota United games with him, and he was always a big presence and fun to watch. I, I think both of those center backs we were mentioning and a couple of, you know, like Matarita as well, also an MLS guy, they're really good in attack, which could be something influential in this last window because, again, like the goals just aren't going to come from open play, I don't think, unless something changes or unless Campbell does something amazing. So maybe you get a little bit more set piece quality here. Maybe you get something different. Um, but they need that. They need that because there's just not, you know, unless someone steps up, which is kind of the big question mark, kind of the big enigma. Like, does anyone do this? So we'll, well the, on that front, uh, I've, you know, watching a li- some of the clips, it does seem like Alonzo Martinez is a little bit of yeah. a bright spot. Good yeah, compliment definitely. to Campbell. Yeah, I haven't been able to track him since he went to Europe. He's, he's uh, kind of on the Manfred Igualde path, actually, um, in the city group. Uh, with their Belgian club, but it was really a bright spot before going across and wasn't necessarily getting called in. He's one of those players where, you know, Suarez seems to have recognized his utility and could potentially be a bright spot, something different that the fans have, have not necessarily seen uh, that can do something a little bit, bit different. So uh, there are players and even some of the guys that are in the domestic leagues. Um, there's a, there's a teenager called in for the first time. Is he going to play? I don't know, but you look and say, ah, maybe there is an opportunity for someone, or there certainly is an opportunity for someone to step up. Will anyone take it? You could be a national hero, but it's it's difficult to say this guy's going to do it or this guy's going to do it because they just don't have anyone that has that kind of consistency um, or has shown it before. So um, right. the opportunity is there, but... I don't know if anyone's answered. In the Mexico, in the draw, the draw, the zero-zero draw at Mexico, he had he received the ball on the left side and then played like a little clipped ball right at the penalty area for Kelso Borges to meet with his head. That was uh, that was pretty sexy, and Borges kind of, um, you know, headed it right at Memo Ochoa. But it was the best chance of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. One more question about Costa Rica. Um. David in the Bay Area asks, and so this is, you, we talked earlier about how Panama hasn't rotated that much under Christensen. How much has Costa Rica usually rotated? And do they have the depth to still be fresh by the time they host the USA at the end of this window that for them needs to be, you know, at least seven points, maybe nine? Yeah, I think it's it's tough for anyone I will say Costa Rica, partly because like some of it is a problem, right? Because you're saying, well, there's nobody that's been consistent. There's nobody that can step up. But they're also, that, that kind of lets you move the pieces around. You say we're not as dependent on, you know, some of these players as maybe other teams are. Um, I, I hesitate to say they're deeper than Panama, but I think they have more options than Panama. You can see more permutations. They've used more different uh, situations or 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 lineups in Panama. I'm sure someone yeah. can go back and look at the exact numbers and say, that's not right. But I just feel like they've been a, a team that will. has... Don't worry. <laughs> I feel like they're a team that is, has rotated more, that has been a little fresher. But again, you need Navas to be healthy. Apparently, he's dealing with a little bit of a non-COVID illness, and he's going to show up. We're recording this Tuesday. He's going to show up tonight in Costa Rica. So a little bit of a late arrival there. Uh, but that, they say that was the plan the whole time, and he's going to be good to go. I. I think he will be. It's Kaylor Navas. He's unbelievable. 
and and Campbell. You know, these are guys that you're extremely reliant on. Can they? They're not going to be able to go 90 minutes in all three games. So there could be an opportunity there. But I do think that you know, they they should be as as ready to go as possible for that game against the U.S. Although again, like maybe maybe something weird happens in the first game or the second game where you say. You know, that, like that El Salvador, it's a bit of a trap game, that El Salvador game. They don't have their strongest roster either. There's some guys missing. But it's not, it's not as easy as you might like in the second game. So I definitely think, you know, we talked about Canada being a, an opportunity for them to drop points or, or a potential area where they could drop points. Hugo Perez wants to take points off him too, and maybe he of will. Course. So yeah. um, we'll see. I think that the, the panorama could really change. But if we're looking at a team that could have some depth, yeah, there could be some there. They're not Mexico. They're not the U.S. They're not Canada. But they're also not as dependent on one or two players as some of the other uh, competitors. Okay. Did you say the the term for touched is tocado? Well, tocado is like if you got a knock, like uh, you're just yeah. kind of carrying something or just like, it's yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, thank you again. Safe travels to you, and uh, we we should get back together like you know a few weeks after the window is over and wrap it all up. We yeah. don't, I don't have to keep you for a full hour that time, but you know. <laughs> no, I would love that. I, if, especially if people are still listening, I want to say, man, I've enjoyed these chats. I've enjoyed the support that the Scuff community has showed the newsletter. You know, it means a lot to me that that uh, I'm able to do this, that I'm able to travel to these games and tell these stories on the newsletter, and uh, it's been cool. You know, I I really do think a lot of that is U.S. fans that listen to to y'all and. It's been cool to watch your community grow and uh I'm, i'll look forward to our chat after the qualification and kind of keep those things going there's still great stories in the concaf region even after this qualification cycle ends and and i'll be telling them so uh i really appreciate the support from you from the scuff community from the people on the discord who i mentioned and uh and from everybody signing up for the newsletter it's it's awesome to see and uh and and, and definitely appreciate it so I hope the community you've created feels that, knows that, and uh, looking forward to still being a part of it here uh, in two weeks when uh, when the dust is settling. Yeah, awesome. I'll be reading. I'll be reading a lot over the next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to your newsletter later today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you.